0: Throughout this year on Louisiana Considered, we've strived to bring you stories that are diverse, interesting, thoughtful, and celebrate the uniqueness of our state. So if you like our show, and if you're feeling in the holiday spirit, we ask that you show us some support so we can keep bringing you more of the stories that you like to listen to. You can make a donation on www.no.org donate or wrkf.org donate. Thanks. Now... Here's the show. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On today's show, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. For that, I'm joined by fellow Louisiana Considered host, Bob Pavlovich. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Alana. As we think back on the past year, I'm wondering... Have there been any stories that really stuck out to you?
0: There have been so many, but a few are especially meaningful. Mm -hmm. Over the summer, I reached out to the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame to set up some interviews with this year's class of inductees. I read about the class and became interested in interviewing a former weightlifter named Walter Imahara. But once we spoke, I learned that his story is about so much more than weightlifting.
1: Really? What'd you learn?
0: Well, I learned that he actually spent the first few years of his life in a Japanese internment camp in Arkansas during World War II. Hmm. He described a really harrowing and defeating experience. Afterwards, his family moved to Louisiana, where he became the first Asian student at what is now the University of Louisiana Lafayette. And it was there that he not only discovered weightlifting, but discovered a community around the sport that ultimately really changed the course of his life. Wow.
1: Well, with that, why don't we give this conversation a second listen?
0: Walter Imahara, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Walter, you were born as the sixth child in a family of 10 kids. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and what you remember about the early days?
2: All I remember is December 7th, 1941. We're living in California, and I was uh, about five years old, and that was the beginning of the tragedy for the Japanese-Americans. And my family, my parents had worked the property for many years, and they lost it overnight because we had to go to an internment camp. So my parents were really uh, ones that took the burden because we as children, we just didn't know too much what's going on. But the December 7, 1941, that's a long time ago, but that was the beginning.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about you and your family's experience in the internment camp? How long were you there, and how did you make your way to Louisiana?
2: We were in Sacramento, and we had to go to uh, uh Fresno, California, or have an assembly center. Well it's a concentration camp with uh with and guards. And from there, we spent about uh about three and a half months there. We put in a horse stable, so it was really bad. You know, as a child, you got your parents, huh? And so everything is not so bad as a child. Okay, from there, of course, uh, we went to Arkansas for the duration of the war, and that was close to three years. Uh, It was at that time, my parents were really, my father was really bitter about what he lost. He lost his farm and dignities his home, and he lost a country all at one time. And he explained to many people that he's an American. He was born in America, just like my mother. So that puts us like third generation. Uh, The war was over, and we went to New Orleans. My parents wanted to uh, take their family of eight at the time, and their only ambition was to send everybody to college. Eight out of nine... Uh, college education. That's how we did it. And the most important thing was you learn to live by the rules. Asians live by the rules.
0: Well, how exactly did you start weightlifting? How did you get into that sport? And what did you like about it?
2: I was at Shuma High School in 1955, and they were uh, state champion in football. They had weights in the room, would they work out, and we just tried it, and we don't know what weightlifting is. You do a few bench-pressing squats. But uh, when I went to Southwestern, uh, which is in Lafayette at the time, and on the campus, I met this fellow named Mike Stansbury, Coach Mike Stansbury. He asked if I ever lifted weights, and I was astonished, and just fought around. He said, have you heard of a Olympic champion Tommy Kono, and he was released for the camp 1945, like you are, but within seven years, he's an Olympic champion. I said, so I'm astonished. He says, you have the right uh, the, the leg strength and the back posture to catch a heavyweight in a squat position. Come up and just try a few, you know. I, mean, I don't know anything about it, but that was the beginning. But really interests me was he says, uh, We go to meets. we go to Shreveport, go to New Orleans, we go to Houston. I I sure like to be on that team.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those accomplishments. Of course, you did join the Army, continued weightlifting. Eventually, you left the sport to start gardening and landscaping business, but then you returned to the sport. So once you came back, what happened?
2: Okay, you got to remember, when I started Southwestern, the first national championship I won was 1957. And a lot of people in faculty uh, approached me and said, You know, you're the first national champion this school ever had. I said, Well, okay, thanks. You know, I went my way. Okay, and uh, I won three national collegiates. Went in the army. I went to OCS. And, and there is a class of about 60 guys, all six foot Caucasian. I said, This is going to be tough. So my feeling was, they're going to have to run me out. Well, somehow or another, I got through OCS because I found out what the records were, and I started breaking all the physical training records a little bit at a time. And then my name was up there, so they laid off, okay? And there's a good story here that uh, that class of uh, 61, the whole uh, graduate class was sent to Germany there's this Berlin crisis, okay? We didn't know where we were going, and when I got there, I looked at my, uh, my orders in Dachau, Okay, and I said, uh, gee whiz, you know.
0: Right, because at that time, the U.S. was using Dachau as a military base. What was that like as someone who had been in an internment camp to then be stationed at a former concentration camp? Do you remember how it felt?
2: So I don't want to talk about this portion too much because it's kind of emotional, but you know what happened in Dachau. And here I am coming out of a concentration camp in America and going into another one, but this was really... Terrible, yeah. All the atrocities that happened, you know, the piles of bones and stuff, okay? And I've seen all that. So many years later, after I came back, I relate to a lot of people. I said, what we went through is nothing. Huh? Three and a half years in incarcerated in America, and we couldn't go nowhere, but look what happened after, And uh, as compared to Germany
0: can't even imagine. We're speaking with Walter Imahara, six-time USA national weightlifting champion and owner of Imahara's nursery and landscaping company. We've talked a lot about your travels. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the records that you broke as a weightlifter, some of the competitions you were in, the places that you traveled. Can you just tell me a little bit more about your journey with the sport?
2: My journey is I've been on a platform one hundred ninety-one times, okay. I won one hundred fifty-one, because I don't count second place or other things. See, okay. So I had a good career, and and that took me all over the world because being a into uh, uh, the uh, original uh, senior national champion, huh? Six times. Well, I got into the masters program about nineteen eighty for twenty-five years. Uh, I've been on a platform and uh, it's really, I got to see the rest of the world because I was soon, because uh, I was uh, elected to be president of the world masses uh, weightlifting, which com- com- comprised of about 50 nations. So I got to see everything and, and it was a really good rewarding. Uh, a lot of records were broken and I got a lot of trophies and medals. Okay. But all those are, personal achievements. So it's nothing that you can talk about or brag too much because it's something you did.
0: <laughs> you also wrote the book, I Am an American, Japanese-American, Asian-Cajun. What's that all about? How do you reconcile your two identities in your writing?
2: I want everyone to know that we have a background of uh, being incarcerated, but uh, but during this period... And in my achievements of being on a platform, it is great to be an American. And if anybody wants to argue that point, they've got a really uh, a difficult time with me. Because I always tell everybody I'm American, Japanese-American. And then it came up that when I graduated in 1960, I was the first Japanese-American to graduate. And the president of the university says, you're the first Asian-Cajun to graduate. So now, after all those years, I'm an Asian-Cajun.
0: <laughs> Incredible, Asian-Cajun. Well, before we go, can you just tell me about your reaction upon finding out that you would be inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame? What did this honor mean to you as someone who, by this point, has spent years away from your sport?
2: It's been many years since I left the sport, and I think they uh, recognize. that, not as in the, the achievement of a, a small Japanese-American weightlifter, but all the accomplishments. And and he seems to be so proud to be an American on the platform. It's going to be great because there's so many uh, great athletes that come out of Louisiana. But here I am, you know, in a amateur sport at that against all these professional athletes. So it feels good that... Uh, They recognize me as an Asian, too, huh? So it feels good to be uh, recognized, yeah. Took a long time, yeah.
0: Walter Imahara, six-time USA national weightlifting champion and owner of Imahara's Nursery and Landscape Company. Thank you so much for being here, and congratulations.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On today's show, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. For that, I'm joined by fellow Louisiana-considered host, Bob Pavlovich.
1: Hey, Alana. So you interviewed Walter. What happened next?
0: Well, I was organizing photos for the story, and I came across one that really struck me. It was a team of weightlifters at the New Orleans Athletic Club. And in the photo was not only Walter, but... Also, David Berger, the Jewish-American athlete who went to Tulane before moving to Israel to compete on their Olympic team. But at the 1972 Munich Olympics, David was murdered by terrorists in what would later be known as Black September. Wow.
1: What was your reaction to finding that?
0: I was shocked. I mean, I'm Jewish and I love sports. And as you know, both of those things have been big themes in a lot of the reporting I've done. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't believe that I had missed this really important intersection. I immediately reached back out to Walter to learn more, and he pointed me towards his friend Warren Perrin. Today, Warren's an attorney and occasion historian. But back in the day, he was a weightlifter alongside both Walter and David. And he had recently written a book about their three journeys, how a Cajun, Japanese, and Jewish weightlifter all found each other and really connected over their shared histories of persecution. And today, both he and Walter are working really hard to keep David's memory alive. So why
1: do you want to listen back to this conversation now?
0: Well, first off, I should say that it wasn't an easy decision. Talking about the Israeli and Palestinian conflict is obviously extremely difficult and polarizing right now. But I do think that one thing most people can agree on is that civilian casualties are always devastating and shouldn't have to be a consequence of this war. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a reminder that even though this war seems so far away, for many, it hits close to home. There are people in our state with close personal connections to those who have been a victim of this conflict.
1: It's heavy stuff. But you're right, for many, it's extremely personal, and that warrants discussion.
0: So, with that, I think it's time we revisit this conversation. Can you start just by telling us a little bit about David Berger? You write in your book that he was the first Jewish person you ever met. So, what can you tell us about his life and the time the two of you spent together?
3: He was uh, one of the brightest persons I had ever met. Uh, He finished uh, usually the top of his class anywhere he went to school. And he came to Tulane because the sport of weightlifting had centered around the south of Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Lafayette, New Orleans. At that time in the early sixties was the hotbed of that sport. And David wanted to seek the best competition to ultimately fulfill his goal to represent his country in the Olympics. He was a quiet guy, but well-liked, well-respected, always willing to help others. And so he was very curious because I was the first Cajun he ever met. And unbelievably, we could converse in French. He was a minor in French.
0: Wow. Wow. So how exactly was it that David found himself competing for Israel at the 1972 Munich Olympics?
3: After getting his degree at Tulane and marrying his high school sweetheart, they moved to New York and they both entered Columbia University. David ended up getting two degrees, MBA in business and a law degree simultaneously. But he still wasn't satisfied. His burning desire was to go to the Olympics. He ended up offering his wife to emigrate to Israel because he knew he'd have a better chance of making the Israeli team than the U.S. team. And his wife declined and they had an amicable divorce. And he went and worked out with the Israeli team for two years, and he finally made the team, fulfilling his life dream at age 26.
0: That's incredible. Well, can you tell us exactly what happened to David at the Olympics? I think a lot of people know this story. They know that athletes competing for Israel were murdered, but they might not know the whole story behind it and just all the negotiations that went wrong.
3: The backstory is, Hitler used the 36 Olympics to showcase the world the power of Nazism. The result of that was the first time Germany, West Germany, was awarded the Olympics in Munich. They went too far the opposite direction. They didn't want to show military might or police force. And that was their first critical mistake. They, they had been warned. There was some activity going on in the terrorist community. And that would have been the perfect stage because the Olympics had never been interrupted. It was the one place in history that the world came together and put aside differences. And so this well-financed, extremely well-trained group of Palestinian terrorists, this was a sub-organization of the PLO. They wanted to be known as Black September. They managed to literally jump the fence with other athletes coming in from a party one night And they had been given keys to the rooms where the Jewish athletes were sleeping. So at four o'clock in the morning, they barged in. After an initial confrontation where two were killed, two Israeli athletes were killed, they uh, captured 11 of them. And that began almost 24 hours of hostage negotiations, which ultimately failed. And three days after he reaches his goal, David is brutally murdered in a helicopter where he's chained. And they throw a hand grenade, it blows up, and he smothers to death in an airfield in West Germany.
0: We are speaking with Warren Perrin, Lafayette attorney, Cajun historian, and author of the book, The Weight of History, The Power of Apology. Warren, in your book, you you write about certain overlaps between your life and David's life, and it's seemingly pretty different. He is a Jewish guy from Cleveland, you are Cajun from Henry, Louisiana, so What are these parallels that you found and when did you start to notice them?
3: Although I was raised in a Catholic rural community on the edge of the swamps of South Louisiana, raised speaking Cajun French, I felt marginalized as did David being a Jewish American. His family members, some of them had perished in the Holocaust and my ancestors likewise, had experienced an ethnic cleansing, which we now call genocide, where my Acadian ancestors 250 years ago were were deported by the British from Nova Scotia in what we call the Grand Derangement, where we were 18,000 people having settled there for 150 years, brutally uprooted, and one-third of my ancestors were killed. That's the same percentage of the Jewish people who perished in the Holocaust, one-third. If you are part of a culture that has been victimized by a deportation or genocide, it's in your DNA. And David and I could discuss some of these things, because when you go to weightlifting meets, they would sometimes last 10 hours. And there was a lot of downtime where we would just talk and try to encourage each other. And that's where I saw our commonality, as also with Walter Amahara, who at age four, his family were brutally forced out of their big farm in California and spent three and a half years in a concentration camp in Arkansas.
0: Well, your book is called The Weight of History, The Power of Apology. Can you tell me why you chose that title? What exactly is the power of an apology? What gives it power?
3: When people criticize me seeking an apology, I challenge them by saying they had nothing to be apologizing for. I sought an apology for the deportation of my people against the Queen of England And after a 15 year fight, a lawsuit against the Queen, I'm the only person that ever sued Queen Elizabeth II. It was a friendly lawsuit asking for no money, simply redemption of the good name of my Acadian ancestors who had been illegally deported by the British Crown. And she did the right thing and apologized on December 9th, 2003, nearly 20 years ago. Walter got an apology from America for the deportation and the taking of his farm. In 1988, the 120,000 Japanese Americans who were deported by America, they got an apology from the United States in 1988. And that set me on my stage to go after the Queen of England. And I'm so happy we did that. Walter's idea encouraged me all along. And don't you know that the descendants of the 11 athletes killed In the Munich Olympics, they finally got their apology on the 50th anniversary, September 5th of last year. The West German government, in a lengthy speech, acknowledged the responsibility of poor planning, the poor execution of the attempted rest, and the cover-up. They are still right now uncovering documents that were sealed 51 years ago to hide how they failed miserably.
0: Well, when you launched your book, you and Walter Imahara spoke at an event in New Orleans at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience. What do you think that meant both to you and the community to have these non-Jewish men speaking about their Jewish friend in this space where people really do remember Berger and his story?
3: If anybody would have been there, they would have been brought to tears to hear Walter address the crowd at the Jewish Museum. And he said once they were released from the concentration camp, America gave them two hundred dollars to return to California. They had lost their farm, his mother lost her grand piano, and his dad moved to Baton Rouge and started pulling weeds. The only families that would harm him because he was considered a dirty Jap were the Jewish families of Baton Rouge. And Walter broke down crying. And so I I just relate to that. I'm I have written over 12 books of my Acadian experience. So it was real special to be able to tell the Berger family that the book was gonna be launched at the Jewish Museum in New Orleans. And what David Berger's name is remembered throughout the city. Avenger Park has been named the Berger Field. We have a tree planted on Tulane campus. So there's a scholarship given every year at Tulane University for the athlete with the highest grade point average. David is remembered. David's photograph is up at the New Orleans Athletic Club. And so his legacy still rings strong in the Crescent City.
0: Warren Perrin, Lafayette attorney, Cajun historian, and author of The Weight of History, The Power of Apology. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, six-time USA national weightlifting champion and member of the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame, Walter Imahara, and Lafayette attorney and Cajun historian, Warren Perrin. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m., It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. With additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.